Join today's discussion and engage with producers on the Ave Maria Radio Facebook and Twitter accounts at Ave Maria Radio. Respond to interviews and learn who's coming up on Crest in the Afternoon, Catholic Connection, and other Ave Maria Radio programs. Make it easier by downloading the Ave Maria app on your smart devices. Then just tap on the Facebook and Twitter icons to get plugged in on the things that matter most. That's the Ave Maria Radio app or at Ave Maria Radio. Build the church. Bless the nations. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives. And making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. The Theology of the Body book and teachings evolved from five years of homilies that Pope St. John Paul II delivered at his Wednesday general audiences at the Vatican. This talk is the third of four that were presented to a group of young adults. It's intended to serve as an introduction to the theology of the body. Here is Father John Ricardo with, You have been purchased and at a great price. It's a passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is the first letter, chapter 6, beginning in verse 18. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight, and again we thank you for the great gift of life. We thank you tonight in a particular way for the great gift that is your Son's passion, death, and resurrection. We thank you for the grace that is offered to us by his suffering and rising to new life. Father, we all come before you tonight with a variety of different needs and hurts and struggles, challenges in our life, particularly as regards relationships, things that have happened to us in our past, challenges in self-control, battles which we continue to try to master. Father, we pray that tonight you would continue to open our eyes to the grace that is at our disposal to live a new life, a life of love, a life of purity a life of freedom, a life of strength and self-control, the grace to live more and more like your Son. We pray that tonight would be a means of healing. pray that the power of your Word, which has been revealed to us, and the power of the explanation of that Word or the commentary on that Word by the man who is the successor of your Son's friend, Peter, might bring us healing. All these things we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the third out of four ridiculously brief introductory lectures or reflections on the Pope's Theology of the Body. And this is the talk that always seems to change. I've done this series maybe three times, I think, the way it's laid out right now. And the first time we did it, we kind of explored more in depth Paul's teaching on Ephesians 5, the relationship between husband and wife, which maybe we can get into a little bit tonight. It's that wondrous passage that when it's read at Mass, the husbands always kind of elbow the wives. After you actually understand what it means, the wives should be elbowing the husbands. It has nothing to do with what we think it has to do with, and the meaning is really beautiful. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. That's what I did the first time. The last time was something a little different when I did this, and then tonight um, there's a couple of current events which may change this yet again. We can get into that in a second. Somebody's asked a question. It was actually asked the first week, and then I guess it got asked again last week, although not to me. And the question has to do rather precisely with single people. Like, 
Okay. How does this apply to us? Because there's a number of us here who are single. I'm one of them. Consecrated single, but I'm still single. Not eligible, but I'm single. And I just want to try to remind us of how this has to do with us and our lives and what we're made for, whether we're married or not. So let me look at a couple of different things. And now I will talk very specifically to those of you who are not married. This is for you, what we're going through. And it is for at least two ways. There's probably more than this, but at least for two ways we can get into. One is to remind us that we're all made for relationships, every one of us, because we're made in the image and likeness of God and God is three. God is a communion of persons. Therefore, you and I are made to enter into communion with others. We're made for friendship. And marriage, while it's a particular kind of friendship, one which we could say is a sacramental friendship, one which is very public and not private. That's part of the controversy right now in the culture. Culture wants to think that marriage is a private relationship. It's not a private relationship. It's a public relationship. But it's not the only friendship that there is. If it was, then the teaching that the Pope's going into and what we understand from Scripture would be irrelevant for someone like me or a consecrated man or woman or any of us who are single who are not married. This would be totally non-applicable, but it is applicable. Remember last week we talked about original solitude. Original solitude has these two different dimensions to it. One is that the man realizes on the basis of his body, okay, which is how he interacts with the world, that he's alone in the world. He's not like the giraffe. He's not like the hippo. He's not like the Doberman pincher. He's a man. He's a body that expresses a person, whereas the animal's bodies don't. Okay, there's an I in the man. He has a will, and he's conscious of everything that's happening around him. And so on the basis of that, he feels this sense of ache or this sense of aloneness. Well, those of you who are single, and for that matter, those of you who are married too, that explains why we feel the way we do oftentimes in life, alone. Because there's this sense of, I'm made for more than this. I'm made to be in some sort of relationship with someone. And so one of the things that the theology of the body helps us to understand is scripturally why it is that it's not a good thing for us to be alone, precisely because I'm made for communion. And so if you as a single person feel this sense of being alone and you feel this sense of lack in your life, well, that's natural. That's precisely what the Pope's talking about with this discussion of original solitude, because I'm made for more than just me and more than just the world that's around me. I'm made for relationships and I'm made for friendships. And your pet or your new DVD recorder or the wonderful piece of jewelry that you got or your new car or the bigger job and the better promotion and the greater income can't satisfy you. So don't be shocked by that. That's not what you're made for. You're made for much more than that. You're made for a relationship. But original solitude also means that we're called to be in relationship with God. And so as a single person, I think, especially living in the culture right now, and maybe it's always been this way, I don't know, there's always this temptation or tendency to think that you're in transition right now, that somehow you're in this flux stage between when you were in college, when you really didn't have a life yet, and you got married and you had a family. And now you're just on this line that's going who knows where. And please, God, eventually you'll get to a place where you'll have something, but right now you don't have anything. You have a job and you have a whole set of other things. But there's no sense of I'm rooted. That's not true. You're not in flux. You're not in transition. There may be a lot of questions that still lie ahead for you. But there's a lot of questions that still lie ahead for me. There's a lot of questions that still lie ahead for a man or a woman who's married. They just aren't questions of state of life. But you, in your state right now, as a single person, are still called to make a sincere gift of self to others, to find ways appropriate to your state of life, 
to give of yourself, conscious that that's how we find happiness, by giving. And here's the classic, the other lawn looks greener, huh? You still got to mow it, but it always looks greener, is um, you have more time to do that than you will when you're married and you have children. And you also have more time to pray. And that's key. So one of the things that you do in the single life right now, whether God's calling you to marriage or not, who knows? But if he is, or if he isn't, you have today. And today is an opportunity for you to find ways to give yourself sincerely, perhaps in ways that you won't be able to when you're married for all sorts of different reasons. You won't have the time or you'll do things together or whatever it might be. It's also a time to really put in place, if it's not in place, a very solid relationship with God in prayer. Because trust me, you, you will have much less time for that when you are married, particularly if you're a mom and you're constantly being interrupted by your children who need you. So it would be wrong for you to say, sorry, I can't help you right now. I'm praying. That would be bad. <laughs> so this is an opportunity right now to really foster that and to put in place and to get into the habit of spending regular time with God each day, and in doing so, then making sure that when relationships do come into your life, they can be in their right order. And by being in their right order, I mean that God always remains in the center, and then everything else rotates and revolves around that. I just want to encourage us um, not to think that you're in flux. There are a lot of unanswered questions still, but you're not in flux. You may not get next week. I may not get next week. But what the Pope's trying to teach us about how we're made, how it is that God has fashioned us, is something that's to be practiced here and now in my life and not just if I get married. It's also, I think, very helpful in that in learning what it is that the Pope teaches and articulates about how the body expresses the person, that the body has a language, that there's a, what he calls the nuptial meaning of the body, which says that we're made for communion. It gives me something very practical to evaluate friendships by. Now you can gauge, okay, these are the kinds of friendships where, in fact, my person is being valued. Well, this is the kind of friendship where my person's being ignored and I'm being objectified. And when that's the case, you want out of those relationships because those are neither good for you nor good for the person who's objectifying you or for the person that you're objectifying. In knowing that and kind of growing in this understanding of how we're body persons whose choices that we make make us to be who we are. I think we talked about a little bit about that last week, didn't we? The choices that you freely make and that I freely make make me to be who I am. That's a really humbling reality. It's worth reminding ourselves of. I mean, I am the man I am regardless of who I would like to be because of what I've done. That works both for the positive and for the negative. One of the fathers of the church used to say, in that regard, we are our own parents. We give birth to ourselves in the sense that the decisions that I freely choose to make with my life make me who I am, as opposed to this mentality that's often out there in the culture which says, well, I do this, 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 and this, but I'm a nice guy, or I'm a good man. And our actions are at least as important as our words. So it reminds us of all that. And as we continue to understand more of how the Pope teaches about the body, it also helps us hopefully to cultivate self-control. And as a single person, that's essential to cultivate self-control in your will, to learn how to relate with members of the opposite sex in a particular way so that you don't objectify them, that you don't use them, you don't instrumentalize them, but that you always have the capacity and try to get into the habit of actualizing the capacity of seeing in the other a person and not just a thing or an it there to satisfy your senses in one way or another. And if we're ever going to make a gift of self, I need to have self-control. 
Self-control is one of the prerequisites for really being able to love. Only the chaste man or woman can ever love somebody because the chaste man or woman is in the habit of seeing in the other a person and not an it or an object to satisfy me. So it's only when we get mastery of ourself as opposed to just react to external stimuli, which in the culture that you and I live in are flying all around us, you just got to open up your email huh? and you get bombarded by whatever's out there. Only in, in really learning that self-mastery can we ever really be able to love. Now, this is also applicable, particularly today, because I don't know how many of you are aware of a movie which came out last Friday, which may just offer something like an inadequate anthropology. Want to guess what that movie might be? Kinsey, yes. There's a movie out on Alfred Kinsey. Is anybody not familiar with Alfred Kinsey? Alfred Kinsey is a um, sociologist, uh, zoologist, sexologist who... Um, Took a position at the University of Indiana in 1920, grew up in a very strict evangelical household, rejected Christianity, went on to become the most influential person as regards how law in this country deals with sex, how textbooks in high school and college and grade school present sex, and um, somehow provides the information that many people seem to have about all sorts of different sexual behaviors. There's a book out called The Architects of the Culture of Death. Kind of gripping title. Published by Ignatius Press, written by Donald DeMarco and Benjamin Weicker. It's a great book. I'd uh, highly encourage it to folks. It gives uh, really brief sketches on all sorts of folks. Um, Nietzsche, Ayn Rand, Darwin, Karl Marx, Freud, Margaret Mead, Margaret Sanger, who's the founder of Planned Parenthood, Clarence Gamble of Procter & Gamble, Alan Guttmacher, Jack Kevorkian, Peter Singer, and a man named Alfred Kinsey. And I can't even read to you what Kinsey used to like to do. I wouldn't do this on radio. I wouldn't do it alone in a room with one other person. I mean, Kinsey was one seriously disturbed man who advocated for everything from rampant homosexuality to sadomasochism to pedophilia to bestiality. And we now have a movie which is out there, which is basically presenting him as something like a tragic hero. And so we're getting Hollywood's version of this horribly misunderstood man who did so much good. And Kinsey had a very clear agenda, and his clear agenda was to try to destroy Judeo-Christian values, particularly as they regarded sexuality, and to reduce man and woman to mere animals with instincts as opposed to persons with urges who are called to use their wills in such a way as to both love and to avoid using. So, you know, here we are somewhat in the aftermath, but it's still falling, of the clergy sexual abuse crisis. The whole brunt of it was the accusation of pedophilia, although it's really not so much pedophilia as it is sex with teenagers and whatnot, but certainly some instances of pedophilia, huh? sex with children. And here's a man who's being portrayed right now in Hollywood in a very flattering way as someone who's advocating this. So if you like to get the real story on a man like Alfred, this is one place that I would refer you to, as well as a real story on people like Margaret Sanger. Both Kinsey and Sanger have as an intent the whole process of eugenics. Eugenics is the attempt to purify the species. They were both of the opinion, as were a number of other quote-unquote leading thinkers of their time, that only those who were fit should reproduce, which immediately wipes out minorities in their mind. It's worth getting... Um, something like a more objective view of who the people are who have been so influential in shaping so many of the norms of our society. Kinsey claimed to be a very objective researcher, 
when in fact the people that he used for his research, he went out of his way to try to find very deviant sex offenders who were in prison and then used that or a disproportionate representation of those people to try to create the norm for sexual behavior. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that that's hardly going to provide and create the norm. So Kinsey was just trying over and over again to say, whatever anybody ever wants to do is fine. And to point to deviant, violent sex offenders as the proof that this is happening out there. Going back to the Pope, that is an inadequate anthropology. It fails to look at the human person in their entirety. So um, without encouraging you to see the movie, because I certainly don't want you to see the movie, it might be a, an interesting way to actually um, pick out what's lacking in a vision of man without encouraging you to go. Maybe we can get into some questions on that later. Last week, we've talked about uh, kind of the original plan, the good news, how it was, and then we kind of ended somewhat quickly with Genesis 3 and the bad news and how it is and how it all fell apart and the way it has become after the fall and the way many of us or many around us, that'd be the safer way to say it, are still living. That is turning people into objects, turning persons into objects. Guys, on your way home from work tomorrow, listen to uh, sports talk radio and it's obscene. I mean, it's absolutely obscene how they talk, and the innuendo, and oftentimes just not even innuendo, it's just right out there in your face, discussions of sex and the objectification of women. That's the product of the fall. But today we're going to look at the good news, and it really is great news, and it's more than that, it's healing news. When I'm going over this material myself and praying with the scriptures here to be very healing for myself, and hopefully it'll be healing for us as well. So we want to look at what can be with the grace of Jesus and the power of the resurrection and the fruit of the redemption at work within our lives. So the starting point here will be a passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is beginning in verse 13 of chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off once have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law of commandments and ordinances so that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby bringing the hostility to an end. Now, for those of us who are somewhat familiar with Paul's letter to the Ephesians, you probably realize that Paul's talking in that context about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now, what Jesus has done in his redemption is knock down this dividing wall of hostility which existed between Gentiles and the pagans or the nations and make possible this healing, this reconciliation, because now we are both redeemed by the blood of Christ and we can call each other brother. That's the particular point of Paul's passage there, because we're all redeemed sons and daughters in the one person of Jesus. So we all call God father. There's no longer any hostility. But I don't think it's a stretch to say that we can apply that to the most fundamental break or the most fundamental place where there's been hostility, which is not so much between Jew and Gentile as it is between man and woman. Because remember, after the fall and after Adam and Eve cast God out of their hearts, the first result after the break they experience with God, they hide themselves, is the break that they experience with themselves. They feel a sense of shame. Once they were naked and knew no shame, now they feel shame and make fig leaves for themselves and cover themselves. So the first break that's experienced in the human race after the break between us and God is the break between man and woman. And one of the things that we can certainly imply from Paul's writing in the Ephesians is that it need not be like that. 
that there is genuinely at our disposal the means for us to live not as we once lived, okay? This is not pie-in-the-sky thinking that we can just go back to how it was in Eden before the fall. And yet at the same time, it is profoundly hopeful in that the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, the effect of his redemption, does give us the grace and the strength to live a new life. Not the same life, but a new life. And one which is certainly significantly and exponentially better than we've been living in with the fall. And perhaps even significantly and exponentially better than some of us tonight here are living now. And so in that regard, perhaps Jesus' words and the Pope's reflections on them will be very healing. And the Pope isn't optimistic here. Huh? Optimism is just kind of blind. The Pope is hopeful. There's a huge distinction. Hope's a virtue. The Pope is hopeful about this, that we can actually live this new way of life because his hope is grounded somewhere. It's grounded in a person. It's grounded in the person of Jesus and in the actions that that person has done for us, namely his self-gift, his offering of himself on the cross, which has not just reconciled us with the Father, but has restored us at peace with ourselves. And that is extremely pastoral. There was a a man who um, is one of the leading people who has challenged the church's teachings on um, contraception since uh, Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae in 1968, who was in a discussion with another priest that I know. This man used to be a priest. He isn't anymore. Said something to the effect of, what a tremendous injustice the church has done to so many couples. And he was saying that in response to, um, in essence, how the church and why the church teaches that this is harmful to marriage. And the priest that I know said to him, um, yeah, you know, you're right. We have uh, horrifically failed to teach them how real Jesus' grace is and how great it can overcome any obstacle that we might put up. At which point I think the conversation probably ended, and um, that was the end of that. And that's really what the Pope's trying to get at, that there is an incredible power which is given to us all at baptism, Again, at confirmation, every time we go to the Eucharist, every time we celebrate the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and for those of you who've been married, when you were married, an incredible power which was placed at your disposal, a gift that's there for the using, if we will use it. Same for me when I was ordained a priest. So peace is now possible, particularly between the sexes, because after restoring us to peace with his father, He's restored us, or at least has given us the possibility to be at peace with ourselves. Within ourselves first. Because remember, the tragedy of the fall is not that the body becomes problematic. We have to constantly make sure people don't misunderstand the church to be saying that we think that the body is dirty, or it's sinful, or it's shameful. There's nothing wrong with the body. The problem is with the will. The will's inclined to selfishness. We all should know that rather Clearly, if you don't think you know that, ask your friends. I'm sure they'll be glad to tell you. The will is in need of redemption and of new strength. And Jesus gives that. Because by the power of grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can be put back together again, can be whole again. And you and I can now live, really live, lives of integrity. That's something Kinsey is basically denying. And even more so, challenging that that would be worth something. Why would it be worth living a life of integrity? Just live by instinct. Live for pleasure. Be an animal. But no, the resurrection tells us, and Jesus reveals to us, that you and I can live a whole life again. One where the will is rightly ordered, and the will controls the passions, not in a domineering way, 
but so they all work in harmony, so that the passions, which aren't to be done away with, can be used for what they were given for. There's another great book I want to just call your attention to. It's called Love's Sacred Order. It's a little book. It's a great read. I love the guy's name. His name is Erasmo Leva Maricakis. I won't spell it all for you right now. Um, you're welcome to take a look at it. And what he does is, uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, an author, C.S. Lewis, and a book that he wrote years ago called The Four Loves. This is something like an update of The Four Loves. You may or may not know in Greek there's four words for love. In English, there's only one. That's part of the problem that we get into in our culture. We say, you know, I love this bread here. This is really good. And, and then I love my child, and I love God. It all gets a little confusing, you know. In Greek, there's four different words for love. This is an analysis of those four words using the Pope's theology of the body. And he has a great chapter in here on eros, erotic love. And he talks in here about how erotic love is the closest thing to agape, which is divine love, which is probably not where we would put erotic love. And it's the closest thing, he says, because of the passion that's involved in it. Because God's love is not to be described as some sort of intellectual love for us. God's love is most clearly seen in his passion, right? His passion, which is what we call Holy Week, Passion Week. Palm Sunday is really Passion Sunday. We celebrate his passion, death, and resurrection. His passion is for who? Us. And it's relentless, so in no way are we supposed to be ridding ourselves of passion. What we're supposed to do is to find a way so that the passions work in connection with the will so that they're used for the reasons that God gave us to be able to make an extraordinarily generous gift of self to others in whatever state of life we find ourselves. So you and I can do all that by obtaining self-mastery, obtaining self-possession, and obtaining temperance. Another great book, also very thin. If you only want to read the last chapter, it's this thin. I only read the last chapter. That's why my book comes apart. This is just too long to read, so I just pick up this part. <laughs> great book by a guy named Joseph Pieper, a great philosopher called The Four Cardinal Virtues. And he has a tremendous section, this last section right here, on the last of the four cardinal virtues, which is, anybody want to guess? Temperance. Yeah. Prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance. And it's under temperance that we find chastity, self-control, and all the things connected with it. This is one of the most healing and strengthening chapters I think I've ever read in my life on why we would want to even live this way. And it's very important, I think, especially for working with kids, whether you're teaching kids in uh, religious education or you're training your own children, one of the things, you know, that happens, oftentimes kids just hear, ah, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, don't do that, well, by all means, don't do that. But they never really hear anything saying, but you should strive to be like this. And here's why. And education used to simply be about teaching children the virtues Aristotle used to call it civilizing the barbarians. Probably pretty apropos. So it's really helpful not just for children, but for us to kind of have in front of us the image of how it could be within my life. And then you see it for how it is and you go, oh, that would be really great. I would love to be like that. And it attracts you to integrity and to wholeness and to being put back together where your life fits and works in harmony as opposed to the way many of our lives work which are just a series of reactions to all sorts of stimuli that come our way on a lot of different levels, including sexually. So again, all that the Pope's suggesting here that Jesus gives to us is not some sort of return to the original state, since now you and I have this problem which is called concupiscence. The image that I always have is a limp. You know, So I can still walk upright. The effects of the fall haven't made it so that I'm groveling on my face. huh? I can still walk, but now I walk with a limp. And it inclines me to trip. 
and to fall. But I don't need to fall. So I'm inclined to selfishness, so are you. But we need not fall. We need not choose to give into the impediment that we have, which predisposes us to fall. In this case, to objectify another, to use them, to not love them, in whatever capacity that that might show itself or express itself. So we can master this impediment that we have, and we have access to the original plan that God had for us, the plan that he had for us with him, the plan that he had for us within ourselves, the plan that, we, that he has for us with each other, and especially the plan that he has for men and women. And the Pope calls that the virtue of purity at work within the man of lust. The man of lust is us. We're the people who have been affected by Adam and Eve's sin. Which means that once we just instantly recognized when we saw another person, the opposite sex, that we're made for communion. We didn't have to think about that. We just knew it. There was no predisposition to objectify, no predisposition to lust, no predisposition to minimize. We just knew, Adam and Eve knew this, I'm made for you, I'm made to give myself to you made to receive you in your entirety. And now, while we don't instantly recognize that, we can live that way by drawing on the grace which Jesus offers to us. So now I can overcome that inclination which wants to try to objectify or that within my will. So his starting point for this section on purity is Matthew 5. So going back to the image of the triptych, this three-paneled icon, the first panel that we looked at a little bit was in the beginning. Did you not read that he made them male and female? That's Matthew 19. Now the Pope moves to the second image of the triptych, which is Matthew 5, particularly Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this involves you too, ladies. So any woman who looks at a man lustfully. The Pope goes on to say this immediately changes the discussion from external acts to the disposition of the heart. So it's not enough just to avoid external acts. What's called for is the transformation of the heart. Just as Adam and Eve cast God out of their hearts when they turned their back on him, so now the challenge is to welcome him back into their hearts and to let him conform their hearts to the heart of his son Jesus whose life is a life of selflessness and giving and loving. And the Pope says a couple of things that I think are helpful here, you know, in particular. One, this isn't to say that attraction's bad. That's not the point. It's not at all the discussion here. This is not attraction that's being accused. It's that within us which wants to forget the person, put the fig leaf over the face, and just instrumentalize. He goes on to say that Jesus doesn't say much more than what he says here in almost a really respectful way of just kind of looking at his audience, which is not just the people of his time, but us, as if to say, and I know you know what I'm talking about, and just leaves it there. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is not an accusation from the Lord. It's a judgment. And even better, it's an appeal. Oftentimes, I think we mistakenly have the impression and mistakenly give the impression to other people that the whole essence of the call to repent, which is the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospels, huh? it's the first words he issues in the Gospel of Mark, repent. You know, that call is not, you stupid people, you're doing everything wrong. That's not what repent means, although that's true, we're doing everything wrong. <laughs> the call to repent is, I have such a better way for you to live, and why are you settling for so little? And so the Lord in Matthew 5 is making the appeal to us, particularly as regards the attitude of our heart in the relationship between men and women, that there is a much, much better way to live 
than how we have been living since the fall, and you can do it. Because he wouldn't set us up for some disaster by telling us to do something which we couldn't in fact do. So the meaning of adultery gets transferred from the body to the heart, where the same eye can choose either evil or good. Pieper talks in the, the chapter on temperance about how oftentimes we use the image that, gosh, I got a, a war going on inside me, you know? When you talk about the battle between doing good and evil, there's a war going on inside me. Part of me wants to choose to do good. There's another force that wants to do good. But there's no war. It's just me. It's the same me. The same me who can choose to be good can also choose to be destructive and self-destructive and destructive of others. And so the Lord here, as he's discussing Matthew 5, is trying to appeal to the I within me and within you to live the life of freedom and not to abuse it, which is what sin is. Sin's just the failure to live freedom well. That's what George Weigel says, the guy who wrote the biography of the Pope. And Jesus is the one who makes possible real freedom. And real freedom has two dimensions to it. Our culture is seriously confused on this. Our culture tends to see freedom as simply freedom from any restraint. But that's not freedom, that's lawlessness. Real freedom has both a freedom from and then a freedom for. So real freedom is I'm free from those things which keep me from living the way I'm supposed to live so as to be free for living the way I was made to live and to find happiness. Both of those things have to work together. And the whole gospel ethos, or the whole heart of morality in the gospel, the whole call of Jesus throughout the gospels is an appeal for you and me to live freedom. And one of the things that you realize as a Christian is that freedom is demanding, meaning that it's hard, it's really hard to live free. Or it's a burden at times, in the sense that it would be an awful lot easier, I don't know if that's the right word, to just be able to blame instincts. But I can't blame instincts because I have a will and I'm a person who makes choices. And in that regard, to be free and to grow in freedom and to develop the habit of living a life of virtue is a challenge. It's one of the particular responsibilities that parents have in helping their children grow in virtue and to foster a life of virtue. And it's certainly one of the responsibilities that we all have who are involved in education of one kind or another. But again, we've got to hold up something like a reward. Kinsey, going back to him, had a horrific example of a father who gave a terrible image of God. And look what it caused. Because of his father's portrayal of God, a God who was harsh and cruel and a taskmaster and the enemy of freedom and of happiness, Kinsey just rejected all that. In part, because of that, he had his own issues too. But you realize how essential our representation of God is. That doesn't mean you paint some whitewashed image of God for kids. You paint the whole truth about him. But you certainly don't teach that God is some cruel, harsh taskmaster who's waiting to drop the anvil on you as if you're Wiley Coyote. That's not the father who sent his son to die for us. So we realize how all those things become significant. And again, talking about freedom and talking about the call to repentance, it's worth reminding ourselves that God hates sin for only one reason. And it is what? Because it's bad for you. No, not because he said don't do it. That would make it arbitrary. No, that's what many people think, though. Because he said it, it must be wrong. No, it's wrong. It's... It's wrong because it's wrong in and of itself. And what's wrong about it is that it's bad for me and it's bad for you. And his love for us is so great, he doesn't want to see you get hurt. And he doesn't want to see me get hurt, let alone hurt others. That's why he hates sin. Not because it's the breaking of some arbitrary law, but because it's destructive of ourselves. And one of the tasks that's facing us, particularly as regards sexuality in our culture, 
is to understand more deeply how certain behaviors could possibly be destructive of myself or of another, especially living in a culture like ours, which has so changed the terms and tried to make everything look like an expression of love. And that requires lengthy discussion and the use of our intellects more than just our feelings. Two last key texts. The one is the text that I read when we opened up, which is 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. This is a really powerful text to pray and reflect with. Again, shun immorality. Run from it. Run away from it. Don't flirt with it. Don't think it's safe. Don't think, ah, no big deal, I can handle this. Run from it. Why? Because every other sin that a man commits or a woman commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are not yours, and I am not mine. My body no longer belongs to me, nor does yours belong to you. It has been purchased, not with gold or silver, but with God's own blood as he became man. So the Pope, in commenting upon this, reminds us that our bodies have been given to us not just once, but three times. They were given to us when he created us out of nothing. The only reason that I'm here is because out of love he made me. So he gave me who I am. He gave you your body when he made you. But if he had not died for you and for me and risen from the dead for you and me, that would have been no good. That's the line in the Exalted. We talked about the Exalted last week. Oh, happy fall, which merited for us so great a Redeemer. One of the other lines in the Exalted is, what good would life have been to us had Christ not come as our Redeemer? If God had not become man and entered the world and rescued us from the slavery of sin and death, life would have been a drudgery. And so in doing that for us, he gave us our body back. That's the second time. But he gave it back a third time when when you and I were baptized, he actually moved in and the Holy Spirit began to dwell in us and you and I now are, what Paul says, temples of the Holy Spirit. So imagine what it would be like if you walked into wherever your parish is this coming Sunday and as soon as you walked in, maybe there in the gathering room, there's a couple of books and there's this huge pornographic display. Probably a little bit unnerving, huh? Certainly doesn't belong here. Then you walk in and you're kind of thumbing through the pews and here's a hymnal, here's the gather, here's worship three, and oh my goodness, what's this? And someone's just scattered pornography all throughout the church. What a desecration of the church, huh? It doesn't belong here. Well, that's just a building. You're a temple, and so am I. How less appropriate is immorality in you and me than in some church, which those sacred acts happen in, does not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in it the way the Holy Spirit dwells in you and I who are made of flesh. And so Paul is reminding us and telling us that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that there is now in you and me real power to call out for and to ask for help and for healing. And that, my friends, is great news. There is real power, power to live a genuine freedom, both the freedom from and the freedom for. And the thing we most want to be free from is the freedom from sin. And the result of all that is purity, real purity, which doesn't just mean sexual purity, all that is really morally good, but in a narrow sense, it certainly means sexual purity and chastity. But also from this passage, the Pope says that there comes a profound sense of gratitude and of awe. We talked about the gratitude a little bit in the sense that our bodies have been given to us, but also a sense of awe. Because there should be, as we understand this and internalize this, a real obligation upon each of us to recognize again in the face of every person that we see, this is going back to what we did weeks ago, in the inviolable dignity of the human person, every person that I see is a temple of the Holy Spirit, has been given the gift of life by God, has been redeemed by his precious blood, is destined for eternal life in heaven. 
Particularly, the Pope talks about how important that is within marriage to recognize that in your spouse, to have a sense of awe for your husband or your wife. This is no insignificant person here, regardless of how we may be at each other's throats tonight. This is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that he calls piety, a profound reverence and respect for the other person who is so loved by God that he's been redeemed or she's been redeemed and destined for all that she has or he has. And then a last passage we'll look at quick is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses uh, 3 to 5 and 7 to 8. Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from unchastity, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And so the Pope talks as he comments upon this um, section from Paul in a particular way is how purity is a capacity which makes us capable of acting in a particular way, a way where the person can practice self-mastery, self-control, chastity, purity, all the things which are going to be necessary for someone to ever make a sincere gift of self, whether we're talking in the sexual sphere or in general. And that's all important because we find happiness how? By giving. So if I can't learn to control myself, if I can't learn self-mastery, I can't master those things which make it possible for me to give, I won't ever find happiness because happiness comes precisely by giving. All I'll ever do is walk through life with knee-jerk reactions to everything as opposed to responding and learning how to interact accordingly. So that is very practical. We're living right now in a time when sexual addictions are rampant. They've got to be here in the room. But as many people are as here in this room, statistically, we have X number of people who are addicted in one capacity or another, who've just kind of habituated ourselves to an inappropriate and insufficient understanding of the gift of sex, where we treat ourselves or others like things. And what the Pope's getting at is there is here at our disposal freedom and healing and new strength and new power so that whatever might have been a pattern of behavior can die so that the sense of not being able to live a life of freedom can happen. Again, the one girl asked that first night, you know, as we were talking about chastity and what good is this to, to kids and whatnot, and we talked a little bit about how the basic message of the media and particularly of a lot of sex education to youth is, you know what, you, you're not going to possibly be able to control yourself, so just be safe, huh? Talk about an incredibly pessimistic, negative, insulting attitude towards youth. We don't think you can really do this. This is way beyond you. Huh, you don't even have a chance. Just protect yourselves. In the midst of all that, the church's teaching says, no, you don't have to give in to that. You can live a life of integrity. You can begin to cultivate now in your lives a manner of interacting with people and relating with people that sees in the other a person, and the only proper response is always to the other person, to love them, not to use them, but to love them, not to treat them like a thing, but to love them and myself, same way. So let me just end with this, because I know we have a set of people here in one way or another who are involved in working in the church or who volunteer and teach religious ed or who have children at home. And one of the most essential things I think that we get out of this is how important really good catechesis is. Because how does one get grace? I wasn't rhetorical. How does one get grace? The sacraments. The sacraments are a privileged way that you and I receive grace 
supernatural strength so as to live the life, not simply that God made us to live, but actually equally as importantly, the life that you and I want to live. When you and I don't live well, we know it. That's part of that sense of shame, when I'm not living the way I know I should be living. And it causes tremendous disruption within the heart of man and woman. I'm not living the way I'm supposed to be living. I know that. But you can feel helpless. But there's grace for the taking if we will dispose ourselves and put ourselves in a place where we can get it. So people need to understand more and more fully what was given to them at baptism, is given to them when they come to communion, when they celebrate confession, when they're confirmed, when they get married, when they get ordained, when they get anointed, that these aren't just empty rituals that we perform in the church. These are incredibly personal and intimate encounters with Jesus. One of the places where this most needs to happen is in confession. So many people stay so far away from confession. They stay away out of a sense of shame, out of a sense of fear, or out of a sense of pride. But God hates pride. It's the greatest of all sins. And he loves the humble. That alone should be enough to give us the incentive to run off into confession. Confession is an opportunity for you and I to sit down individually, face-to-face, with Jesus. Regardless of how mundane the penance might be, or how sleepy the confessor might sound, or whatever, it doesn't matter. The reality is you're face-to-face with the Lord, just like the woman caught in adultery was face-to-face with the Lord and left forgiven, just like Jesus and Peter encountered each other on the Sea of Galilee after Jesus had risen from the dead, and Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And he knew he had been forgiven for his denial threefold. Just like everyone who encountered Jesus in the Gospels left knowing they'd been forgiven. So when you and I go to confession, we leave forgiven. I don't have to sit there and kind of conjure up in my mind, okay, I think really God forgives me. No, I hear it. And the more that we can help people understand that in all the sacraments, that what happens in confirmation is someone's given grace at this incredibly distorted age of being a teenager, huh? when so many things are assaulted at a kid and thrown at a kid, to tell them, you know what, you're not going to be alone in this. Holy Spirit's going to be with you, and it's not just going to be you know, some image you're going to have to conjure up. No, he's really going to be with you and in you to strengthen you, to give you courage, to give you boldness, to give you strength, to give you wisdom to help you to know how to act, you just got to call upon him. Begin to foster a relationship with him. So grace is what makes it possible for you and I to live the way that God intended us for to live at the beginning, even though now we do it with this limp. And my job as a priest, in a particular way, first of all, provide opportunities for them to come to celebrate the sacraments and to continue to articulate ways which help them understand why they should do that and what happens when they come. That's why I'm ordained. You know, it's like the Pez dispenser. Just pop the head off and out comes grace. That's the priest. Just supposed to be dispensing grace. Who I am doesn't really mean anything. It's what I'm giving by ordination, which is to be a means of grace. Okay, more mass. Okay, come on in. Confession, be glad to hear it. Come on in. Want to be prepared for marriage? Let's go. Sure. Want to go to seminary? Here we go. Sit down. Baptize? Love to baptize your children. Bring them in. I mean, that's what this is all about. And awakening so many of us who've grown up in the church in the last 30 years or whatever, who have looked for emotional highs which come and go and fade and wane, and then they leave the church when the emotional highs don't come, trying to find the emotional highs somewhere else, when right there at their disposal was the most incredible encounter they could have ever had with God, which was the Eucharist or confession or confirmation, the sacrament of marriage, or whatever it might have been that they were celebrating. So in this year of the Eucharist, in a particular way, which the Pope has called our attention to, Here's a chance for us, you know, to put in play all of what we're reflecting on today about healing and whatnot. So you come up for communion, you just go, Lord, I need your strength. Be at work within me. 
I'm having a hard time making a gift of myself right now, Lord. I need help in my marriage or with my children or with the kids I teach or at work or as a priest or whatever. Lord, I need help. And then as you receive him and you go back to your pew, that's something to reflect on. Okay, Lord, Jesus is giving me strength right now. He's recreating me right now. His blood is replacing my blood right now as I feed upon him so that I can be strengthened to be the man that I want to be and you can be strengthened to be the woman you want to be. That's great news. All right, let's end there and we can uh, take that in whatever direction anybody wants to. Yeah. I was just reflecting upon um, how in most, I think in all the sacraments, when we are married or we receive confirmation or when you're ordained as a priest, the Mass and the sacrifice of the Mass usually follows that sacrament. And it would seem more logical that you would want to have confession and communion where you're receiving grace so that you'd get even more grace from a sacrament that you're going to only receive once. So why is that, that the Mass is usually, the sacrifice of the Mass and receiving the Eucharist is after the receiving of the Holy Orders or making your your vows in marriage? Well, it's not usually after baptism. Yeah. Or after anointing. But I'm thinking like confirmation, marriage, and, and ordination. Well, because they have different intents. Huh? So the, the, the intent behind the sacrament of confession is healing. First of all, communion is healing and forgiving. So that's an element that's worth reclaiming for people is to realize, I mean, part of the Mass itself is confessional. The act of contrition that we say at the beginning of Mass, the confidier, I confess to Almighty God, to you, my brothers and sisters. But that's my point. Why doesn't the sacrament of marriage, when you're making your vows, follow the Mass? Like, why isn't the making of the vows... Why doesn't the sacrament of confession? No. when, When you are being married, you usually make your promises to each other before the sacrifice of the Mass. When you're receiving communion. You're in the context of the Mass. Right. Why is that? Well, because the main purpose that you're coming together for the wedding is the sacrament that is marriage. And that's what's bringing people together. That's why you can have a marriage outside of the Mass, particularly when you've got a, a Catholic and a non-Catholic getting married. Mm-hmm. That's the sacrament we're celebrating, which is a, a real dispensation of grace to the couple. So the placement within the Mass doesn't really matter. I mean, you're, it, the whole thing's happening in the context of the liturgy, so it's more just the order of it at that point. The whole thing's caught up in the act of the redemption of Christ. Other than that, I, I can't tell you. Okay. Father John, earlier you were talking about what Pieper wrote in his book, that there's no war within us, that it's just us. How do you harmonize that? With Romans with, 7? Right, with what St. Paul wrote about the struggle with the principalities and the flaming arrows of the devil. Actually, you get three different battles huh? that we fight, or three different classic enemies. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the opponents that the Christian has in life. And usually it's not the devil, it's usually the flesh that I'm fighting. But that's me. It's not like I'm here and someone's kind of invaded me. You know, like aliens inside me trying to pop out and distort me. It's the same will. It's it's my will which is disordered. And I don't think it's impossible to reconcile that with what Paul's saying. Paul's recognizing his will is disordered there. The good he wants to do, he doesn't do. Why? Well, ultimately because I'm inclined to selfishness. And if I habituate myself to live in a selfish way, I'll just kind of slope down towards making selfish acts. Or I can habituate myself to doing righteous acts or virtuous acts. And the more that we do that, the more that we habituate ourselves to one way of living or another, the harder it will be to lapse into another way. The person who lives a virtuous life finds sin 
to be more difficult. The person who lives a sinful life finds virtue to be demanding and challenging. Not that it's ever easy, but it's something that you just kind of grow accustomed to. So I don't think it's impossible to reconcile that with Paul. I actually find his, um, I'm trying to find the section here real quick. I think the good thing about what Pieper says is it it takes away the excuse (laughs) that this isn't really me who's doing this. It's Flip Wilson's The Devil Made Me Do It. And the devil didn't make me do it. I did it. I didn't need his help. Well, what part does the devil play in our decisions? Well, he's one of the three, huh? So, I mean, again, the classic opponents are the world, which doesn't mean the world which God loves, which he's come to redeem. It means the spirit of the world, which is hostile to God. Walking down the streets in Italy is the world in many ways. You're just kind of assaulted by good things as well as by not so good things, which uh, can be provocative in lots of different ways. The devil works differently with different people in that regard. You know, demonic attacks are different. They could be attacks against faith. They could be seeds of doubt. That's usually, I think, how that manifests itself as opposed to something like selfishness. I think that's where, at least in my life, that's where I experience the games of hell most particularly. But you got those three foes, huh? The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's just classic Christian teaching. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, we heard Father John Ricardo with the third of four introductory talks to Pope St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. The title of this was, You Have Been Purchased and at a Great Price. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 789. For a CD of this or any of our programs, online go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 789. Theology of the Body number 3. Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a non-profit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.